On this edition of the Iowa Business Report. I just don't see how investing in affordable housing is viable long term, really, because that is going to put a burden on future taxpayers. Iowa cities and counties received more than a billion dollars of federal stimulus money. But how well was that money spent? If you think the number of workers quitting their jobs recently has been high, just wait. And in our business profile, we'll introduce you to an Ames company seeking to use new developing technology to benefit animal health. This is the Iowa Business Report for the third weekend of August, 2022. The Iowa Business Report is a copyrighted production of Totally Iowa Media, which is solely responsible for its content. For more, click on the radio programs button at totallyiowa.com. Here is Jeff Stein. $1.162 billion. That's how much our state's cities and counties received in whole from the American Rescue Plan Act, or ARPA. The Iowans for Tax Relief Foundation undertook a study of how that money was spent. And according to Sarah Curry, research director at the foundation, on the whole, Iowa spent the money well, but it was hardly needed. We talk about how these local governments needed it so badly because they were in these dire straits in the pandemic and all the economic indicators just didn't point to that. Unemployment jumped back really fast and it just didn't seem like these dire events were actually coming to fruition. So I was like, where are they spending all this money? So that's kind of where it came from, really just personal interest and looking at my own local government and just seeing that they weren't hit as hard as they thought they were going to be. Iowa received almost $1.2 billion from this American Rescue Plan Act stimulus. You focused on some counties and some cities. Tell me the idea behind the methodology and why you selected what you did. Well, we looked at the different population centers around the state. Looking at an obscure rural community probably wouldn't tell the story where if we could compare, let's, you know, Waterloo to Sioux City Council Bluffs, Muscatine, those areas with more population and more economic activity, we could see where they're spending their money. Are there any similarities? Are there any stark outliers and that type of thing? So that's why we selected them. Uh, Ended up being 19 local governments in total, 10 counties, nine cities. We got a really good geographical representation across the state. So what's the headline? What's the uh, takeaway after all of that crunching of data and review of information? Well, I would say our local governments have done really well. You know, in the wake of the pandemic, they weren't hit as hard as they thought they were going to be. That said, you know, from a fiscally conservative standpoint, I would say don't sign up for future obligations because the money is a one-time event. It's going to go away. So you don't want that burden on taxpayers down the road. And most of the local governments in Iowa did that. They did really well. And I guess the most surprising thing to me, which I didn't think about, but now that I got the brain thinking, water and sewer infrastructure, that was a huge investment by a lot of communities across the state. How long has it been since your local community's well or wastewater system was updated or built in the first place? So I think that was actually a really good use of funds. I can't really argue with that. Now, were there some ridiculous things they spent money on? Of course. I mean, government doesn't do everything perfect. But overall, I would say they were not bad stewards of the federal taxpayers' money. And to be clear about it, there were some parameters that these governments had to work under. The money was to be used for certain purposes. Infrastructure was one of those. Were there some opportunities that may have been missed? In other words, 
things that a community, a city, a county could have done to relieve a little burden on citizens, but they chose to spend the money in other ways. Well, I think that did happen in some places. Um, like I know in one community, they decided to update like a greenway and pave a, a walking trail. Is that really a need? Is that really necessary? You know, when I look at tax dollars and I look at the priority of government spending, I mean, I'm an outdoor enthusiast, don't get me wrong, but I just don't see that coming up very high on the list. I would rather see things like fixing the wastewater treatment center or fixing potholes, things that citizens really, really need. Another community, they updated and created body cameras for their law enforcement. As a citizen, when I pay taxes, I expect certain services. And those services usually include public safety, basic infrastructure, you know, for roads and transportation and those types of things. When, you know, Mason City decided to invest a bunch of money into their tourism website, I just don't see how that's a really good use of money. I'm sure it could have gone somewhere else that would have saved the taxpayers money down the road. But that was one of the things they invested in. And not to pick on them, but that was just one of the things that stood out to me. And again, it may be allowed. And it may be something where they say, well, this may give us future development, but we're talking about money that was provided because of a global pandemic under the broad umbrella of emergencies. And so that is to your point that if this really is emergency-related money, perhaps it should be focused on things that either have some sort of a lasting impact like infrastructure or tax relief. Exactly. And, you know, when I looked at all of the money that was spent in the communities that we surveyed, only 12% of that was spent in that public health category. You know, in the wake of a pandemic, when you're running vaccination clinics or testing sites or additional health safety measures, I would have expected that to be much, much higher, but it wasn't. Surprisingly, revenue replacement was the highest percentage use of the money. And really what revenue replacement did is it said, okay, local government, all you have to do is prove to us that you lost money, you lost revenue. And then you have complete flexibility to use this money however you want. And when I saw that, some communities, they built a horse barn at their fairgrounds. That's what Cerro Gordo County did. Some other communities, they bought new office chairs. They updated their software. They put in new playgrounds. They got new signage. Okay, yeah, those are those are things that I guess a local government needs. But again, I don't see those as necessary in the wake of a pandemic. So that little spending on public health, I guess, shocked me the most. Were there folks who had the ability to claim government money and either did not like the parameters, couldn't think of a project or just didn't want to deal with it? In other words, some folks who left money, government money on the table, if you will? Yes, there were. This was not, hey, local government, here's a check, just take it and do what you want with it. It was more of, we're going to send you this money, you have to certify it and send something back to the state saying, yes, we're going to take this money. And so there were a lot of smaller local governments, I mean, smaller, like communities of only 100 to 150 people, but they chose not to take the money. They just said, we don't know how to spend this, like we don't have a use for it. And then there were other ones that just out of principle said, we're not taking money from the federal government. We don't want it and we don't need it. So altogether, 27 said, no, they don't want it at all. Some government said, we won't take it, but we're going to let the state have our money or give our money to other communities that might be in bigger need. We don't need it. It was around 70 local governments that just for whatever reason didn't take any of the money. And again, those are mostly the smaller communities in our state, but still that's a large amount. 
itrfoundation.org is the website for the Iowans for Tax Relief Foundation, and the full report is available there. It's a nice PDF that anyone can review. Were there other expenditures, you mentioned one or two, other ones that really struck you where you said, well, I guess it's legal, but I'm just not sure the citizens would have thought this was the best use? You know, one of those, and this is a hot button topic, so forgive me, but affordable housing. I know it's an issue. I understand. But some of these local governments were buying abandoned buildings and retrofitting them for affordable housing needs. Again, is that really a good use of dollars in the middle of a pandemic? And I understand that people need housing. But again, we're in a recession. We have inflation. You've got a pandemic. I just don't see how investing in affordable housing is viable long term, really, because that is going to put a burden on future taxpayers unless they're planning on turning it over to a nonprofit. And again, that level of detail is not involved in what I was able to pull. But I was surprised at the amount and the number of local governments that put money into affordable housing. Overall, as one reads the executive summary that you prepared for the project, it's not bad. It's pretty good. It's it's something that if you care about good government in Iowa, I guess on the whole, if I'm reading this correctly, you have reason to have confidence in the government. Yes. You know, when we look into government, a lot of people immediately just jump to, oh, they made a bad decision. And I'm probably the first person to be a naysayer since I researched local government and government finance for a living. Um, But I was surprised and very proud, I guess, to be an Iowan because you hear of all these crazy stories coming out of New York and California. And and I'm happy to say we don't fit into that narrative at all. Like Iowa is definitely a shining star in that respect. Overall, did a very good job. Sarah Curry, research director at the Iowans for Tax Relief Foundation. We spoke via Zoom on Thursday, August 18th. You can read the full report by going to the group's website, itrfoundation.org, and search for ARPA. Still to come, take this job and quit it. And focusing on animal vaccine production. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report. However or wherever you plan to travel this summer, your journey starts with soy. Soybeans are used in athletic shoes, tires, and even biodiesel. Whether you're on the move by foot, truck, or charter, soy-based products are making travel more sustainable for all Iowans. Iowa's 40,000 soybean farmers and the Soybean Checkoff are driven to deliver sustainable solutions for every life, every day. Find out more at IASoybeans.com. The Iowa Business Report is presented by the Iowa Waste Reduction Center, sponsors of a series of free community training workshops on composting, recycling, and more. For information, go to IWRC.org. The annual Employee Stress Check Report was released recently. It's conducted by the Harris Poll in cooperation with Talkspace for Business, Some 1,400 full-time employees were surveyed this year. The results showed that now, in the third year of the pandemic, 51% of workers still feel burned out, and 46% feel stressed at work. And despite record levels of resignations in recent months, more than a third of workers, 34%, say they are still considering quitting their current jobs. And of those, well, more than half, 59%, say their job burnout has gotten worse in the past year. 
Those most at risk for quitting include working parents, younger workers, and workers in so-called service industries including retail, education, hospitality, and health care. While nearly three-quarters of those surveyed said more paid time off, including mental health days, would be a factor in them staying at their jobs, fewer than two in five workers use most of the PTO they get now. Coming up, quick turnaround of new vaccines. That's the goal of an Iowa startup. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report. This is Michael Swanger, owner of Iowa History Journal. Are you tired of the same old news? Then pick up the July-August issue of Iowa History Journal to discover new, uplifting stories about the father of space science, James Van Allen, TV's The House with the Magic Window, Sioux City's World War II base, and our exclusive series about the history of Iowa radio, Making Waves. Get your copy of Iowa History Journal at Barnes & Noble, Walmart, Hy-Vee, Fairway, and iowahistoryjournal.com. Support for the Iowa Business Report comes from the Iowa Business Council, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization working to elevate Iowa's economy through leadership, research, and advocacy. Learn more and review the annual Competitive Dashboard Report by going to iowabusinesscouncil.org. In our business profile, you'll hear from Joel Harris, CEO and co-founder of GenVax Technologies, based in Ames. The year-old company just secured $6.5 million in funding from three major players in the pork supply chain, all to help get their unique vaccines to market. GenVax Technologies is really bringing advances specifically around vaccine development from the human health side and bringing it back to animal health, specifically livestock. And, and we're very focused on two diseases in particular, swine influenza virus uh, and African swine fever virus. So we're, again, using novel technology, vaccine technology to produce candidate vaccines for those diseases. To my understanding, certainly with the African swine virus, we have nothing at this point, correct? Right. There is no USDA-approved commercially available African swine fever vaccine. There is some really good work coming out of our collaboration with the USDA. They're working on their own more traditional vaccine that's been tested in Vietnam, but to date there is no USDA approved vaccine available in the United States. Yeah, we're we're really interested in it. We call it self-amplifying messenger RNA. Sometimes it's called SAM. So it's referred to different things in different scientific literature. And it really has uh, some advantages compared to the strict messenger RNA platforms that Moderna and BioNTech are using. And again, we'll be delivering it with a, a different nanoparticle technology. So there's the potential to solve the cold chain issue for deep freezing of the vaccines. There's a potential for decreasing the dose or the amount of messenger RNA needed for these vaccines. So we really see a lot of advantages in terms of costs of goods, manufacturing, and and also a simplicity of manufacturing. In a unique way, obviously what you're doing is tremendous, especially given uh, Iowa's investment in pork, leading pork producer in the country. This almost seems to me like you've got the vaccines that are being developed for humans, you're developing these vaccines, 
there's information that you can each be using to help the other. So in one respect, you may solve this very important issue with regard to the swine industry, but it could have implications for human health concerns and vice versa. Am I understanding correctly? It's definitely possible, whether that's because as you might, as your listeners might be aware, you know, influenza in particular is a zoologic disease. It transmits between people and pigs and birds. You know, you have avian influenza, swine influenza, and human influenza. Those reassortments pose a real threat to public health. And so the more we can work to develop better vaccines for pigs could actually protect the people that work in those pig buildings and vice versa. So yeah, I agree. I mean, we're a big believer of the, of the One Health aspect that several other companies, both on the human and animal health side, support. We're all connected in this you know, more than I think people think. One of the challenges, and I have no information, no great knowledge base in this field, but one of the challenges I hear is that by the time a strain is identified and a vaccine is developed, well, that's almost old news to the virus, right? Because it's mutated in different ways. This technology and what you're working on allows potentially for a much more rapid response. Am I correct? Yeah, that's our goal. And again, because we're just dealing with the genetic sequence or or sequences of specific viruses or pathogens, and we don't work with the whole virus, we're able to use synthetic biology to insert that into our platform and develop candidate vaccines very quickly. My goal, uh, once this is commercialized, is that we would be able, from the time that we get a sequence information from a swine producer that we would have a custom vaccine to them in as little as four weeks. And that is a lot faster than a lot of the other custom vaccines or regional vaccines that are on the market today. And again, without knowing anything about it, that just sounds very fast. To be able to take something and turn it around in a month, that has the potential, again, when I think about uh, African swine fever and, and the decimation of so many herds of animals, and therefore reduction of the world food supply, having this available that quickly, again, I've used the term before in our conversation, Joel, but it's a game changer. Yeah, I I sometimes refer to it as a paradigm shift. I mean, I think what COVID-19 taught us is that, you know, instead of us trying to predict what the next epidemic or pandemic or outbreak is, that we invest more in in the infrastructure and technology to rapidly respond and match what's happening. I mean, no one really can accurately predict what influenza strain is coming next year. You know, it's true that some diseases are more what they call conserved and they don't change as often or there's not as many variants, but some things are constantly evolving and changing and we need to have vaccine technology that competes with that. You and the family's various businesses have a tremendous track record, but obviously you have some key investors who are very bullish on what it is that you are doing with regard to another $6.5 million that they've invested in this in news that we were made aware of this week. So this is not a small undertaking. It requires a lot of money, but you've got a lot of people signing on board, and that's all in addition to your initial funding, uh, what, a year and a half ago. Yeah, and and honestly, the the stakeholders of investors we've put together, I I feel, is really unique. You've got 
United Animal Health, which is uh, based out of Indiana, but is actually a global company focused primarily on on nutrition, but have expanded their portfolio of products over the years and, and have an aggressive diversification strategy. Also, Johnsonville Ventures, which is part of the, the Johnsonville Brat branding, and then the Iowa Corn Growers Association. So you literally have almost the entire food supply chain on the pork side, at least, from you know seed to feed to nutrition to animal health and wellness to sustainability to the consumer-facing goods from the packers and the processors that would all be affected if African swine fever were to come into the United States. And so they realize the threat, you know, the danger that their constituents and customers are in and, and are banding together in a really unique way to support this. And it does seem only appropriate that you're based in Ames, given all of the various things that we've talked about here. Let me ask you finally, if we have another conversation in five years, what do you think we'll be saying with regard to GenVax? I mean, my hope is is that by that time we'll have a, a USDA fully licensed manufacturing facility, you know, most likely in the Ames or, or around that area, providing different products to at least the livestock industry and maybe beyond into other animal health species. You know, again, over the last several decades, you've seen large animal health companies have a footprint in the research park in Ames, Iowa from Merck Animal Health and their acquisition of Harris Vaccine to Zoetis and, and their acquisition of Performance Livestock Analytics to Boeinger Ingelheim. So, I mean, there are huge multinational animal pharmaceutical companies that call Ames, Iowa, one of their homes. You know, we're just adding to that kind of ecosystem. Joel Harris, CEO and co-founder of GenVax Technologies, online at genvax.com. We connected via Zoom on Wednesday, August 17th. And that brings us to the close of this week's program. We're back again next week at this same time. In the meantime, you can listen to all or part of today's program by going to totallyiowa.com and clicking on the radio programs link. We're also found on all the major podcast distributors, 19 now in all. The Iowa Business Report is presented by Advance Iowa providing business solutions and support to small and medium-sized businesses. Let's work together. More at AdvanceIowa.com and search for Advance Iowa on LinkedIn and Facebook. We welcome your comments. Send them by email to radio at totallyiowa.com. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a prosperous week. The Iowa Business Report is a copyrighted production of Totally Iowa Media, which is solely responsible for its content. For more, click on the radio programs button at totallyiowa.com.